I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. Welcome everybody to Thrive with Dr. D. And today we've got the most relevant discussion for you because I don't know if you have seen the documentary on Netflix that has been doing the rounds. Everybody's talking about it, The Social Dilemma. And I think they're talking about it because, first of all, it's interesting and fascinating. Secondly, it's relevant, but it's also quite scary, all of this. And people are thinking a lot about the social dilemma. And it's about the whole impact of social media on the development of children and on how we are becoming more and more not only informed, but manipulated by social media for gain that wasn't in the original understanding or contract. But to help me really understand this and to help you and unpack it properly is somebody who's been no stranger to Thrive with Dr. D, Josh Ramsey. Josh, welcome to you. Josh has been on the show recently, and we did speak also about social media and the effect on children and some guidelines for parents in particular. But now, Josh, we've got you back again, and thank you, because of the explosion of this documentary that needs to be taken very, very seriously and the influence of social media. So perhaps we can just start by you telling us what not only the documentary is about, but what the landscape of social media is today and what some of the dangers are that we need to be alerted to, most particularly as parents. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, Dory. It's always such a joy to to be on your show and to interact with you. I actually learned so much from you the last time we chatted. So I really am here for my own best interests as well. And welcome to your listeners as well. So yes, The Social Dilemma is... Basically, it's a whistleblower style documentary from the creators, the software designers themselves, led by a man called Tristan Harris. And he's been dubbed the the conscience of Silicon Valley. And basically, these are the guys that designed the like button, the automatic refresh, the autoplay functionality, the recommended videos and YouTube. And these are all the guys that are saying, we designed these things. We didn't know how they were going to end up impacting society and we're not okay with it anymore. And so they unpack all the ways in which the algorithms, which are solving for uh, X, and X happens to be you know, growth, engagement, and revenue income for these platforms, and how this computational power has now run amok on pursuing these outcomes. And the impact that that has had is that it's, it's, it's really what they call causing a race to the bottom of the brainstem. It is causing us to be manipulated by outrageous content. It is polarizing our opinions and it is having a negative effect on our children's, particularly anxiety levels and their ability to thrive using their devices. So that's that's really what it's about. So what you're saying is that the people who were involved and who were really tasked with a particular mission and with an outcome, what mm. was the mission? The mission was get customers the mission was to make money and the mission was to get us to the top of our game how were you going to do that you had to find ways of using technology to attract people to be compelling to engage people to look at areas perhaps even of some vulnerability 
Where yeah. can we book people? How are we going to get them to join our platform? How are we going to make them feel in a way if they don't join our platform? And how are we going to make them feel that in order to be highly regarded by other people of their peers or in order to think of themselves in a way of being in, in a way of being feeling good and recognized and part of the crew, these ways, these very innovative ways are how we're going to do it. So some of the ones that you mentioned is like, you know, the, how many likes do you have? Yeah. How many followers do you have? Or have you seen this? Are you the first to see it? Can you join the group? So all the things that you and I find very interesting to do with the psychology, most particularly of a particular age group, but not only. You know, feelings don't grow up. They're just housed in bigger bodies. I like that. That's a great way of describing it. <laughs> feelings don't grow we, up. Yeah. So, you know, these kind of things affect us all. But perhaps, um, you, and you can say, when we get older, we're able to kind of step back, be a little bit more discerning, create a minute, not even a minute, a second, before we press, Yeah. before we click, might be able to think, whereas perhaps, you know, coming out of an immediate responsive brain, it's much more of a reaction rather than a response, and you get hooked very quickly. And what you saying, the actual raison d'etre, by the way, of this social dilemma, is that the same people who designed this have all are also waving these red flags about how they could be affecting humanity in a way. I think that classic statement of the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And none of these programmers got to their desk day after day, pulling 16 hour days with the outcome in mind of causing mental discomfort to children of polarizing opinions in the, in the political and social landscape. None of them had that intention, but the way that the business structure is, is set up and it's based on what's called the attention economy, where the commodity that is being traded is people's attention. You know, how attached and how engaged are they with their devices? Because that is the commodity that's being optimized for. They tended towards these more, what are called in the, in the corporate speak, persuasive technologies. And these are the technologies that you refer to in the way in which we, for example, you mentioned tagging and photos or, or being invited to a group. That's leveraging our vulnerability for social reciprocity, where if someone does something nice for you, you invariably feel obliged to do the same for them. So if someone tags you, you invariably have to go and look what happened in that tag. It's also leveraging our, our social status, which is crucial to our ability to feel confident and safe in our groups that we're a part of. So if someone's tagged me, is it a good photo? Will it reduce my status? Is that, is that status at risk? And then because that's just the trigger that gets you into the platform, again, what you're talking about is that reactive space where feelings don't grow up, that you then have a feeling when you're in that space and now you're on there for 20 minutes scrolling and checking and doing a bunch of other things that are also triggering off that um, need that you have for social connection. And just like you say, children have even less of an opportunity to interrupt that kind of curated experience of engaging with the platform than adults would hopefully go, oh, yes, I actually have work to do. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So there are all of these compelling ways and that get you hooked in. That's the first part of it, to feel like that you're very much part of the group. You also said that you feel, you know, you can't be dismissive or rude mm. by not responding. By not responding is also sending a message. It's sending almost as strong a message as responding. You almost feel that whatever you do or don't do, there's a judgment to it. What do you think it does about being present in the moment? There's two layers to the attention economy that you're talking about in terms of, you know, the desire we have for likes. And then I'll transition from there talking to this in the moment versus the distracted kind of presence that we develop. But the real goal of social media platforms is not only to get you to become addicted to attention, but it's being addicted to the getting of attention from others. So not only are you addicted to your own interaction with your profile and how many likes that it has, but you're also addicted to the ways in which others are interacting with that platform. So there's kind of more than one layer in in which they are getting you to compulsively interact with the platform. And as you say, this impacts how we relate to in the moment versus this kind of distracted online the way that online behavior impacts those interactions. And so the one way that I kind of explain this to teenagers when I work with them is that in the moment, present-filled, moment-to-moment relationships are all about the context. They're the context of what's brought us together. It's the moment in which we exist in, whereas our online interactions are more about the content. They're all about what does the content look like? You know, are there enough filters on this image that has been curated, the, the video that I'm producing, whereas the other, uh, in the moment, is all about the connection. We have the, the micro reactions in the face and how we're picking up the feedback in real time of how we're showing up. And so the impact that it has is that as we normalize towards these online interactions that are not live, that are curated, that are filtered, and that are rethought and republished and taken down and altered and re-uploaded, is that we lose the ability to take risk in the moment with our interactions and to really read how we are showing up to others and how our actions are impacting them. And that really impacts authenticity and vulnerability because then it's too risky to to wear my heart on the sleeve and to build a lasting intimate relationship with someone. And I think one of the ways in which we're seeing this really saddeningly happening in our teenage population is, is the rise of sexting, where often a teenage couple will have shared nude pictures with one another before they've even kissed. And, you know, we've kind of in the last generation where we we would go through a progression of holding hands and spending time together and maybe a hug and then maybe a kiss on the cheek and maybe, maybe a kiss, you know, now it's hi, how are you doing? Mostly via text. And then the sharing of nude photos, not too long after that, maybe before we've met in person, maybe before we've held hands or, or, or kind of, progressed along that normal intimacy development chain. It all seems to me that the behavior that you're talking about, like the sharing of nude pictures right at the beginning, is not the norm. That it's still, it's a possibility. It's made it much more possible because of the kind of technological platform. But it's still, it doesn't seem, I mean, I'm hoping I'm, I'm right, that it's not the normal kind of behavior. It's still extreme behavior. I think I would like to believe that as well. And unfortunately, in South Africa, our statistics are not particularly good in terms of showing um, 
what children are being exposed to. But when, when, when you look at the percentages and most statistics that we use to kind of really get insights come from the U.S. But, you know, in the U.S., you're talking about about 84% of teenagers have admitted to seeing pornography, about 70% of tweens, so that's 8 to, eight to 12, have seen pornography. And so when that kind of content is so ubiquitously available, and experienced, then it becomes normalized. It becomes, this is how you build intimacy because generally parents are not having those conversations about sex, about intimacy, how to build relationship, about consent. And so children are looking to pornography as a form of sexual education, and then it's normalized. So yes, it, it, I hope that it is fringe and it is not the new normal, but you know, definitely the anecdotal and statistical evidence that I've seen from the U.S., and in, there have been other studies done in South Africa where our cyberbullying and our access to, to smartphone devices is up there with some of the top or some of the worst statistics in the world. So there isn't a specific one on sexting and pornography that I've seen, but I would infer that even if it's half as bad as the US, we're still talking about a significant amount. So there's that behavior, there's the mm. bullying behavior. I mean, long term effects of that. And, you know, <laughs> one of the little cliches that you always hear, and I think you still do now, but sticks and stones will hurt my bones. Remember yeah. that? And actually that was so untrue. Another angle to that, which is quite interesting, is that the sticks and stones that those words were, were only thrown at school generally. So they were limited to five hours per day. And that's really what we're seeing now is that those sticks and stones, which in the last generation were only thrown at school and generally by one or two bullies. And if you saw them coming down the walkway, you could run the other way or you could yeah. wait for the bell to ring and run home. Those sticks and stones are now coming at you at 9 p.m. at 11 o'clock at night. At, you know, you wake up and you've got notifications and there's more sticks and stones. So it is breaking those feeling bones and, and causing a lot of harm. And, and again, you know, running from statistics from, uh, from the US, but you're looking at significant increases in self-harm, significant increases in suicide attempts, which is, you know, really, really, really sad. So, you know, suicide in the US is the second highest cause of death for children over than 10. It was, I think, was it 10 to 19 or so in that study? Yeah. But it's really. So, Josh, you spend a lot of time, and I'm so pleased that you are adding you know, your strong voice and your influential voice to Tristan Harris and the other guys because, in fact, you know, I think that they were a voice of relief to some of the other people in Silicon Valley. Most definitely. I might not encourage to do it, but they were also the first voices. And then I'm sure that there's got to have been some backlash as well. Yeah. One of the most powerful moments um, at the end of that movie is when they were interviewed about how they handled their own children. Yeah. And all of those executives said, my kid doesn't have a phone. Yeah. I mean, that was also fairly extreme. Because they were very clear about the limit, the extreme limit, and they work in the industry. So there couldn't be anything more glaring than, look, don't support what I do. So in your work with it, I want to know what you highlight as the dangers. Work with parents and how you deal with some of it with the teenagers. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's where this conversation needs to go. So not only to these practical solutions that I'd, I'd love to unpack now, 
but also the potential future Dory, which is so exciting. You know, it's like we invented the atomic bomb because World War II was happening. And now we know that awesome power and now it can be redirected into incredible technologies that can really help humanity. So let's definitely, let's unpack some practical things for teens and for parents. And then we can have a bit of fun as we, as we close out by looking into this utopian future that could exist. And there's already some great solutions that are coming into the marketplace that are showing this kind of next level of humane technology. But in terms of practicality, so, you know, you heard it from Tristan Harris, those executives, you heard it from Steve Jobs, delay getting your child a smartphone as long as you can. I mean, obviously, if it is now becoming a point of social exclusion and, you know, there will come a time that they need a device, but ideally we're talking 12, 13, 14, ideally not before then. So to the parents, I'd say start looking at devices around 14, less if you have to. Before you move on, I want to say to you, if you say that to parents and children, some that I'm thinking of in my head, I'll have an increase in my patients because these kids are going to feel out of it. The parents are going to feel, I can't deal with my child. No, it's not easy, Josh. I know. I know. I do talk to the parents as well, but I think we need to have a gold standard even if we don't get to it. Okay, I'll, I'll go with it. Maybe the, the proviso on that is then just be aware of age restrictions. If your child does have access to the device, understand that that device is a free for all. Unless you change settings, unless you're monitoring the apps that are downloaded, unless you are engaging with your child, and we spoke about in the, this in the last Thrive, was it's about relationship for first and foremost. You know, we can put these regulations in place, but there has to be a daily check-in. How are you doing? How was your digital day? What's going on in your social media feeds? And you had those great examples about the ways in which your kids have been interacting with you and very open. And, you know, that's exactly where we want parents to be. But in terms of practicalities, it's delay if you can. Definitely watch those age restrictions. You need some form of device control. So you have to understand that your child will be exposed to pornography if they have access to a device. It's not an if, it's a when. And you can delay that when you can influence that when by having some form of software, having some form of content blocker, and there are various ones available at different price points. But we have to understand that the industry is optimizing to engagement. It's not optimizing to safety. So there is regulation coming through the South African law reform to, to kind of turn on some legal parameters around access to adult content. But at the moment, it really the owner sits with the parents. So delaying access to those devices, privacy and age restrictions, and one that you really can control as a parent and integrate into your teaching processes around consequences, around delayed gratification, around rewards for hard work is use in the home. So no devices in bedrooms at night, having certain areas that are device free, whether those are time-based or geography-based, so kind of maybe it's dinner tables or maybe it's breakfast or maybe it's bedtimes or two hours before bedtime, but having a space that is quarantined off, <laughs> to excuse the, excuse the language, from devices. Because we have to understand that the urge for children to engage with their social circles, to build status, to reciprocate on their interactions is hardwired into their biology. And it's stronger than their developed neocortex to then to think about, is this good for me? They're not asking themselves, is this good for me? They're still developing that capacity. So 
so those would be some of my tips for parents out there. And definitely all of this can really revolve around the concept of a digital family alliance. And that's just fancy speak for bring your family together once a month, twice a month, talk about what's important to all of you, talk about the limits that you want in place, review your rules, review your agreements and agree them for the next time period. You know, when I talk about resilient children, that's really what we, what we try and, and, and gauge all our content towards producing resilient children. And really, they have these four things in common. Delayed gratification, understanding of consequences, a growth mindset, and a perception of control. So a growth mindset is instead of getting your child to study to get five A's, rather help them to study five hours a day or whatever the appropriate age for amount for that child is. So instead of being an outcome-based goal, you want your child to have habit-based goals. So because there's always things changing in our world, we want them to develop habits for life as opposed to outcomes that they chase. So when a parent says something like, you can't use your device one more time in the next four days, and if you do, I'm going to take it away for a week. It's a very hard outcome for a child to, to pursue and have any sense of perception of control over. Whereas if you said for today, you're only allowed 10 minutes. If you can do 10 minutes a day for the next three days, then I'll increase it to 15 minutes for the three days after that. That is much more of a growth mindset to give them that perception of control where they can understand that if they change how they act, they can improve the rules with which they are interacting at home. So that's where that perception of control comes in. You know, this is how we look at building resilient children. And really, device use needs to just fall into that parenting repertoire of a reward, of a motivator, of something that they can do. And we're not saying that no screen time is good. We're saying good screen time is good. And that's just a way for parents to think about it. You know, it's so important here to understand the greater context of that parent-child relationship, because as you know, there's no blanket solution. And so for a parent and child that are already very distanced from one another, that are really estranged that they've had behavioral issues for the parent to come in now and having watched the social dilemma and had a whole bunch of stuff explode in their brain and then come to their child out of the blue and say, you know, now you have to change the way that you've used your devices and, and all these other things that are outside of, you know, that are so far removed from the way in which the parent and child are interacting anyway will be very difficult. So it's really for parents to double down on building relationship with their children. And then when they do, it's about... Again, the parent sharing quite openly what they miss about their relationship because the child, especially if they've been heavily involved in device use, won't actually be really aware of the potential for the connection that the parents are talking about. They might just, they might kind of say they don't have a frame of reference for what this relationship may look like outside of their current reality. So there has to be a step-by-step -step process and it's not going to happen overnight, but it will involve the parents leading the way in saying, we need to change how devices are used in our home. We're in this together, especially with teenagers, with younger ones, you know, we need to show them that we are the leaders. But with teenagers, there needs to be a kind of co-creation that we're going to try out some new agreements for a week and we're going to see how it goes and then we're going to review it and come back to it. But it really does involve the parents and definitely if the teenagers are old enough to give them the content and ask them to argue back the other way. So we're not kind of arbitrarily putting these limits down. Say to your child, watch this documentary. I want you to tell me what you think. If you think it's not true, bring me the evidence that justifies why you need your phone at night at 11 o'clock. If the evidence makes sense, I'll give it to you for sure. 
The one part that I found is very important is, you know, in the development of the relationship is to recognize what the child's need is for this and how they are going to feel when you put these limits on there. So the kind of conversation is also, you know, this is really difficult for you. On the one hand, you're seeing the journey of what can happen. On the other hand, it's just so hard, you know, to put this into practice because you're going to feel out of it. You're going to feel sort of left out. You're worried about the perception that other people are going to have of you and the judgment. You know, you just to kind of access in a very empathic way what you think they might be feeling like and not even and and get them to engage with you on that level so that they don't feel that you're just giving instructions they feel that you're understanding and when they do feel connected with understanding maybe what it could be like how else could we affirm what are these needs and what can we do to, to kind of recognize them and see if they're better ways of having them met or otherwise how do we recognize some of the danger how do we teach you to see that big red stop sign before you press the button can we increase your awareness because awareness is the first step to change so that kind of I think that the responsibility as you're talking about with parents now you know, you'd think that as we progress in some in inverted commas, the responsibility might get less and could be more shared. But in fact, from what you're saying, it really becomes more as a parent. Those values, the highlighting of dangers, the delaying of that instant gratification, all of that is so highlighted now that parents have to address. And when they're dealing with their own issues and through this time with uncertainty and money issues and all of that, it's huge. So tell us about what we can look forward to. Oh, yes. So there are so many ways in which, in which this technology can, can really change the landscape and change the way in which we interact with devices. And, you know, so much of it comes down to getting to a deeper goal. So Tristan Harris, as we've spoken about already, when he left Google, he was one of the ethicists at Google and he started on this journey that he's culminated in the social dilemma. He founded a, an organization called the Center for Humane Technology and he's got an incredible podcast. So just Google, if you're a parent out there, Google, or especially if you're an educator, if you're a parent, if you're a, a futurist, if you're a technologist, check out the Center for Humane Technology. He's got a podcast called Your Undivided Attention. And he interviews some incredible people. So I'll give you an example of the way technology has transformed Taiwan. Now, Taiwan had a big problem with kind of dictatorship and a lack of democracy. And there was a guy that went into one of the sit-in at parliament's kind of protests. And his what he gave, he was a technologist, and he brought in about 350 feet of Ethernet cable. And he connected everyone's devices and, and projected them onto a big screen outside on the street. And his prerogative was radical transparency in the governing systems. And what that has amounted to is that Taiwan has an incredibly efficient digital system of a digital democracy where people can escalate issues, they can be voted upon, meetings are live streamed out to the internet. And because of all these efficiencies, they get things done extremely quickly. I mean, it is, it is a model example because it's a small population with high technology usage, but it's a great case study in how government can be really put into a superpower 
space of n- not superpower, but let's say super efficient in terms of its bureaucracy and really getting things done. But on a very personal level, there's a company that is doing incredible work and they've got another documentary for parents that they must watch called Childhood 2.0. It's a company called Bark. And their concept is basically, at the moment, we hand all our data to the algorithms of Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, all of these services that we use for free. And as we spoke about, these algorithms are solving for engagement, growth, and revenue. So engagement of me as the user interacting with the platform, growth of the network of users, and revenue through advertising sales. But now imagine we had a different kind of relationship with that algorithm. One that was more like a fiduciary relationship, say with a lawyer or a doctor, where there are some higher values that govern the nature of our relationship. And that's what Bark has done. So Bark is a, is a piece of software. It's an algorithm that you give your children, where your child gives over their login details to their social media platforms to Bark. Bark then runs its algorithms through all of the content that your child creates. It's all anonymously moderated. Because of its machine learning, it can determine that your child says to their friend, you didn't invite me to that social, I'm going to kill you. And it won't flag that, but it will flag, I really hate that guy, I want to kill him. That will get a flag. And basically, parents just get notifications when something, um, When imagine a, a, a dog walking along with your child in a forest, and if something bad happens or something dangerous happens, it barks, and the parents are aware of that. Yeah. To you, we're not going to squash the technology. Once it's done, no. it's done. And the challenge is how do we use it in the service of humanity? Yeah. So Josh, I'm really appreciative of you bringing this to us, especially highlighting these dangers that have been depicted on that documentary. People can easily be dismissive. They might say it's a documentary, fake news, or whatever they might say. But you are here today. And I'm, you know, saying it with you, just really, guys, we're seeing the fallout, the increase of depression and anxiety, particularly in kids, in higher suicide rates. So please join us to just highlight this and try and get on the bandwagon of supporting technology for humanity. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. It's uh, always wonderful to chat with you, Dory. And we're doing some exciting things in this space. We're busy developing an online safety course that children learn through playing Minecraft. So instead of having to watch all of this boring video content that parents are shoving down their necks, they can go into Minecraft and they can explore and and understand passwords and online safety and cyberbullying and how interconnected the web is through play. So we're really excited about that. But I'll, I'll let you know when, when we launch that. Now, please let us know about that. We're all on the same mission here. <laughs> Thank you. Sure thing. Yeah, we are. And if there's anything that I can do, um, if we also run parent webinars and we have a bunch of resources on our website that can help as well. So please feel free to go check that out as well. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, everybody. Thank you for being with us. See you next time. I'm Dorianne Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast.